0: Well, hey, I want to welcome all of our campuses, Gateway South, Gateway Central, Gateway Branson, you on the internet and here at North. Uh, Today, we are talking about doubt. And that song by 21 Pilots is wrestling with faith and doubt. Tyler, the the songwriter, uh, is talking about uh, how he wants the marks on his skin to mean something again. He actually has a cross tattooed into his left arm. And he says, I, I, I don't want you to forget about me even when I doubt you. I'm no good without you. It's this wrestling of faith and doubt. God, don't give up on me even when I doubt and I struggle. Have you ever felt that way? You know, maybe some of you are here and, you know, you're like, uh, you doubt all this stuff, all this Jesus stuff we've been singing about. But you're here with friends and family because they're so into it. And I want to welcome you and say, way to go. At least you're open-minded to it. You're here. But maybe you're thinking, yeah, but, but, you know, my doubts, you know, they, they just wouldn't go at all. Because after all, faith is just believing. You don't question. You just, you just take the blind leap, right? You know, it's interesting because um, when, before I was a Christ follower, uh, I kind of thought that. And I remember I was dating a girl in high school Who uh, She grew up Catholic, which I have nothing against Catholics, nothing wrong with Catholics. Catholics just like non-denoms, us non-denoms. Some have authentic faith, some are just playing religious games. But she grew up, uh, every night they would say a prayer at dinner, and one night after they said the prayer, she said, hey, how do we know God really exists? And her dad got red-faced mad and said, don't you ever, and slammed his fist on the table, Doubt or question the existence of God in this house, go to your room, young lady. And she called me and she was crying and she was upset. And here was the sad thing. You know, I didn't really care at that point. I was like, great, <laughs> you don't have to mess with that anymore. But I think she actually wanted an authentic faith. But for some reason, her dad had gotten the impression that no, God is offended by your questions or your doubts. You just can't do that. You just believe. Well, obviously, we don't believe that here because we say doubters are welcome. And that's because, for me, it was when I had a place where I could wrestle with my questions and my doubts that I found a genuine, authentic faith, a relationship with a God that I discovered is just as real as electricity, which, by the way, you can't see either. (laughs) But when you start to understand electricity and how it works, you see evidence of it everywhere, right? Now, just because we come to faith in Jesus, though, it doesn't mean all doubts just poof, go away forever. So what do you do with doubt? And that's what we're going to talk about today. You know, we're, we're in week two of this series, Overcome. And we're looking at the accounts of those who saw the risen Jesus, who were close to him, but they still struggled, just like we did. And we're going to pick up from where we left off at Easter last week. We looked at this strange, revolutionary thing Jesus did. Because he took women as his followers, as his disciples, which is totally against the rabbis of that day. And then he chooses to make them the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And we looked at that and we talked about how it actually made their testimony more credible. And I want to pick up there. It says, Jesus, this is after uh, that first Easter. They come to the tomb. The stones rolled away. Jesus met the women and greeted them. And they ran to him and grasped his feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers, leave for Galilee. They will see me there. And what Jesus does is revolutionary. Because women in that day, were their testimony was not even admitted in a court of law. They wouldn't believe them back then. And Jesus is overturning the way of the world here. And he makes them, the women, the first eyewitnesses of his resurrection. And then he tells them, go tell the guys. He forces the guys to believe them, And says, go tell them, go to Galilee, which is a 10-day journey by foot. And there, I will reveal myself to them just like I did the women. Now, all four writers uh, of the eyewitness, eyewitness writers of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, say that. Mary Magdalene the other women were the first to see the risen Jesus. They came back and told him the men didn't believe him. And you know, as I started to study this, preparing for last week, I kind of started to wonder if Jesus had to make a concession because of these guys. You know, because it, it talks about how he said, go tell the guys to go to Galilee and I'll appear to them just like I did you women. But the men were so stubborn. They stubbornly doubted these are his closest followers and i wonder if jesus was kind of like guys you're ruining my surprise come on you're blowing it because they would not go to galilee and so it seems that jesus changed plans because it says in mark 16:14 jesus appeared to the 11 men in jerusalem as they were eating and he rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Because Jesus had told them many times before it happened, here's what's going to go down. This is what the prophets foretold. But they still doubt it. Which gives great hope for you and me. (laughs) Because these were Jesus' closest followers. So Jesus opts for plan B. He appears to the men, rebukes them. But it says also, Thomas, also known as Didymus, or means twin, one of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the disciples told him, we've seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nail marks were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas says, no way. I'm not so gullible. I am a man of science unless I physically have proof, like stick my finger in his nail holes, which is, which is kind of obsessive and a little gross, isn't it? I mean, Really? But he says, you know, I'm not gonna believe. And of course, if you want the name Doubting Thomas to stick for 2,000 years, do that, right? (laughs) But but Thomas is basically saying, when it seems too good to be true, maybe it's not true. And you know, you can't completely fault him, right? Because sometimes that's true. Like, I remember the time when my family was going on vacation uh, to California, and uh, my wife, got uh, this incredible deal uh, at, at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. Now, the Ritz is like one of the, you know, most luxurious, posh hotels ever, right? And, uh, and my wife is incredible at getting deals of a century. I mean, she, she can. Uh, but she got the Ritz-Carlton Hotel for $45. Yeah, that was my first clue, that maybe this is too good to be true. The, the second clue was that it was in Amarillo. <laughs> Ritz Carlton does Amarillo. Something just doesn't ring right there. But, you know, we thought, hey, well, that's great if you did. So we drive all the way across Texas, you know, turbines, tumbleweeds, and even made it through Lubbock. You know, we're hoping finally for a little luxury at the end of the rainbow. We drive into Amarillo, we drive up to the hotel, and sure enough, she was right it's the Ritz. I mean, it's right there on the plexiglass window with the bullet hole in it. (laughs) Said Ritz. And we were laughing. I mean, all of us, kids, me, Kathy too. We were all laughing so hard. Now, I just have to say, my wife is one of the smartest women ever. She's like magna cum laude smart, but she's a sucker for deals. And this one got her. (laughs) And so we were laughing so hard. We said, we have got to go inside. Because it was like this corrugated tin building. It's like a big shed, and we walk inside, and it's like they'd made plywood rooms all the way around the edge of this shed, painted them white. There's was a big overchlorinated pool in the middle with, you know, fake golf grass and fake palm trees and giant gnomes everywhere. And it was like scary. It wasn't the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. It's more like the Bates-Carlton Motel. But that's not where the too-good-to-be-true ended. So after laughing, we decide let's go find a real hotel. We start looking. The Jehovah's Witnesses were having their national convention in Amarillo that weekend. We could not find a hotel everywhere. Finally, at 11 p.m., we give in and get gouged $230 for a room next to an all-night karaoke bar. I'm not kidding. 3 a.m., eyes wide open. I'm listening, you know, to drunk cowboys hollering, sweet Caroline. You know the song? Yeah, you yeah. know. Sweet Caroline. <laughs> exactly. And it sounded worse than any of that. So sometimes when things sound too good to be true, it's because they're not true. And actually, that's where a little measure of skepticism and some doubt is healthy. See, you know, faith is not opposed to a little doubt and questioning. And, and actually, Paul, who was a skeptic, you know, he ended up writing a good chunk of the New Testament, but he was persecuting Christians, killing them, until the resurrected Jesus appears to him as a blinding light. He goes on to write a big chunk of the New Testament, but he says, test everything that is said. Hold on to what is good. Hold on to what is good. See, God doesn't want us to just cut off our heads and not think. He gave us our minds for a reason. And faith in Christ is not counter to reason. It's not a blind leap of faith. Like some people say, it's a reasonable step of trust in God. Now, I used to have doubts. I doubted Jesus was the Messiah, this one who would reveal the unseen, infinite God. And so I obviously doubted the resurrection too. But what I found, what I discovered, is that not everything that seems too good to be true is always untrue. There are mysterious things that turn out to be true that we don't understand them at first. Like how light or an electron uh, can be both a wave and a physical particle. Which doesn't make sense, but it is true. Ask scientists, right? Or, you know, and and this is where we have to understand that doubt can either be uh, doubt that leads us to truth Or it can be doubt that's used as an excuse. You know, think about it like this. Um, Up until the mid-1500s, it was a no-brainer that the earth was the center of the universe. I mean, it's obvious. Everybody can see it. It's observable, right? All the, the, the sun and the stars and the moon and the planets, they all revolve around the earth. You see them every day. Duh. But some doubted like Copernicus and others because they noticed retrograde motion of the planets and it didn't quite make sense. And so they questioned and and doubted. And that doubt led to a better understanding of truth that actually the sun is the center of our universe. Now, that's where doubting can lead to inquiry that can lead to a greater understanding of truth. Now, interestingly, the religious leaders of Copernicus and Galileo's day, they doubted what Copernicus and Galileo were saying, but it was, it, was, it was not doubt that led to truth, you know. It was, it was doubt that really uh, was about staying in control. And this is, this is what we have to understand. It was dogmatic doubt that was lazy. It wasn't interested in seeking truth to know. Now, here's the ironic thing I find is that Religious dogma doesn't dominate in our society. I mean, not at all. But there's still dogma. And sometimes I find skeptics who have a dogmatic doubt that matches that of the religious in Copernicus' day. For instance, they will say, well, there is no God. I know it. Science has proven it. And I said, oh, but look at all this evidence. They won't look at the evidence. They don't want to. They already know. <laughs> but see, that is actually dogmatic doubt that's lazy And more interested in staying in control than it is in seeking truth. But there's a catalytic doubt which leads to inquiry that leads to a greater understanding of truth. And we believe that God has nothing to fear because he is true. So we can seek truth. But catalytic doubt isn't easy. And what I find is most people honestly are just looking for confirmation of what they already believe. So Thomas believed in Jesus, but ends up in dogmatic doubt for a while. But he didn't start there. He was a commercial fisherman who came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He bought the Jesus Messiah hook, line, and sinker. No pun intended. Well, maybe so. <laughs> and then he, then he leaves his fishing business, and he follows Jesus for three and a half years. And he sees Jesus do miracles. He sees Jesus heal people and and heal the blind and lepers and feed 5,000 and do amazing things. And he believed he was a Messiah, but he also bought into the cultural understanding of what God was going to do. That the Messiah was going to conquer the Roman oppressors and bring this golden age of blessing. And the prophets had foretold that, and it will happen eventually, but they also foretold something mysterious, that the Messiah first would suffer even go to the cross. And we looked at that foretold last week. But most of the Jews of Thomas's day ignored that part. They're like, let's just get on to the good part where we get everything we want. <laughs> Which, by the way, Christians can do too, right? Where, as, I'll follow God as long as he makes me happy and everything goes my way, but then it doesn't. And all of a sudden, doubt of everything creeps in. Well, Thomas is there, and he's fighting. He's willing to fight for Jesus as the king. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he's ready to fight the Romans. And then Jesus says no. He commands him not to fight. And Thomas runs for his life. And then that Good Friday, he watches from a distance as they spike his friend to the cross in the killing fields of Golgotha. And as Jesus' life drains away, so does Thomas' faith. But Thomas's doubts are rooted in disillusionment with God. And I find, honestly, that's where a lot of our doubts are rooted in. So Thomas knew this messianic hope, but whenever Jesus would say, the Son of Man first must be turned over to the rulers and killed, but will rise again, well, that didn't fit his paradigm. So he just kind of pushed that aside, ignored that part. When Jesus died, his faith coded as well. You ever had that happen to you? You have a messianic hope, kind of like God's gonna do this for me, you know? And if I do this, then God will do this. But God never actually signed up for that deal. And then you do, but he doesn't. And suddenly, doubt. You doubt everything about him. But what you need to understand is doubt can become that dogmatic, lazy doubt that keeps you from seeking God and keeps you pushing God away, or it can become catalytic doubt that propels you to seek truth and learn more about God's will and ways. See, doubt and faith can coexist for a while anyway. You know, we all have faith. Faith is just trust. And unless you are God, you have to trust in things beyond what you're able to control or even know. Let me prove it to you. Think about it this way. Imagine that this stage, this big stage, uh, contains all the knowledge that's possible in the universe. Okay? So think everything there is to know about quarks and neutrons and neutrinos and every subatomic particle. All right? And then the human human body and human will and human psyche, and then all the billions of humans, all the knowledge of all the billions of humans, and then all the knowledge of all there is to understand about earth, and then all the knowledge of the billions of stars and galaxies and planets and everything we don't know about what's on all of them is contained on this stage. Now, If you were to draw a circle around the amount of knowledge that you are currently certain of, what size circle would you draw? A pinpoint, right? All of us. I mean, we don't, we're not certain about much at all compared to all the possible knowledge. And yet, you have to make decisions that are beyond what you can know. Is there a God or not? Not. Well, isn't there a possibility that outside our limited real, little knowledge that there is? But you have to make a choice to trust or not to trust. Now, that decision of faith is meant to be a reasonable one, not an unreasonable one. And we can make reasonable decisions. Kind of like in in a court of law. You know, we don't ever prove things scientifically in a court of law. You can't prove something that happened in the past scientifically. Science is based on repeatable, observable experiment. But you can prove something beyond a reasonable doubt. That's the test in a court of law. Beyond a reasonable doubt. Which doesn't mean beyond any doubt. You know, you can always doubt everything. I can doubt whether you exist. I can doubt whether you're a human. I can doubt whether your mom gave you birth. Maybe you're an alien from another planet. Maybe you're undocumented. We should send you back, you know? (laughs) You can doubt anything. But is it reasonable? Is it a reasonable doubt? Christianity is a faith that's meant to be a faith that's reasonable. And some people need more reasons than others. And that's actually okay because we're wired differently. My mom had an incredible, simple faith. It was an intuitive faith. And it was beautiful. And I saw something real in her with it. I had a lot more doubts. Now, I'll be honest. At first, my doubts were lazy, dogmatic doubts. In other words, I didn't really want to know about God or seek God because what I actually wanted was my will and ways, my plan for my life done, and no one to get in the way, including God. Thank you. <laughs> and then when my dad was dying of cancer, I suddenly started to realize, wow, I'm not in control. Who is? And it, and it, you know, it like shattered my ego perception that I was master of the universe. I realized I'm not master of the universe. Don't tell anybody though. <laughs> and unfortunately, that's where many of us have to get to finally realize that we all have to trust. We all have to have faith in something. We have to make decisions, and they're beyond our certainty. We do it all the time. I know people who are terrified of flying because they don't think planes are safe, yet they fly. They have doubt, yet they have faith, you know? You may doubt that a plane can fly all the way to LA. You may doubt that the landing gear has been checked out sufficiently. You may doubt that the pilot's sober. (laughs) But as soon as you step on the plane, you are entrusting your life, you're having faith in that plane to take you there despite your doubts. So doubt and faith can coexist for a while. And in fact, if you take steps onto an airplane enough, despite your doubts, you're probably gonna realize after enough lights, you don't need to doubt anymore. Same with steps toward God. When you have doubts, if you can take steps toward God, being honest about your doubt, soon you start to realize a lot of your doubts you don't need anymore. So the goal is not to doubt God, just the opposite. You know, Jesus said to Peter, who uh actually took his eyes off Jesus and started to sink, but he had walked on water. He'd done the impossible. And he starts to sink, and Jesus says, you have little faith, why did you doubt? Because he stopped looking at Jesus, he started looking at himself, and it caused him to doubt. So what doubt is supposed to do is lead you to understand who God is and how God works, to catalyze you to trust more and more until doubt is no more. But the great thing to know is God's not afraid of your doubts. In fact, throughout the scriptures, he gives examples of believers who doubted. But they didn't give in to dogmatic lazy doubt. They used it as catalytic doubt to understand more of who God is and how he works. And it strengthened their faith and their confidence. John the Baptist is a good example. He was the prophet foretold by Isaiah and Malachi who had announced the Messiah. Jesus's arrival. Isaiah said in 700 BC, watch for one in the wilderness who proclaims, prepare the way for the Lord. So this is the Lord's coming, and he's going to prepare the way. And then in 400 BC, Malachi writes, God says through Malachi, look, I'm sending you the prophet Elijah before the day of the Lord arrives. And Jesus said, John was the Elijah-like prophet. So John is out in the wilderness, he baptizes Jesus, and he says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He believed, he announced Jesus is the Messiah, and Jesus says, no no men yet have been greater than John, yet after all that, John doubts Jesus' identity. What happens is, John gets arrested, and he gets thrown in prison, and Herod's Lover wants to behead John. She wants him dead. And John too bought into the cultural idea of how God is supposed to work. And he thought, well, Messiah, everything's supposed to go good. It's supposed to be an age of blessing, not prison and death. And so it wasn't looking so good. So John sends his friends to ask Jesus this, are you the one who's to come? Doubt. Or should we expect someone else? And Jesus said, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. In other words, all the things the prophets foretold I would do, I'm doing, John. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble. And the word is literally fall flat on your face and not get up again on account of me. Now notice something. Jesus doesn't rebuke John for his doubt. He says, look harder, John. Look harder at what I'm doing. Just because you don't understand right away doesn't mean I'm not the one you believed in. John, look beyond your circumstances. Look at what I'm doing. And by the way, that's true for you and me as well. You know, when life doesn't go our way and it causes us to doubt God... It's often because we're looking at our circumstances and we bought into some cultural idea often of how God is supposed to work and it trips us up. But he's saying, just because God doesn't do things according to your plans doesn't mean God doesn't have a plan and that it's good. And it's good for you, but it's good for everyone as well. See, your doubt can either cause you to run away from God and use the doubt as just an excuse Or the doubt can propel you to look harder at what God has revealed in the Bible about his character and his will and his ways so that it leads to a deeper understanding, a deeper faith. See, that's why God claimed to do what he did, to reveal himself through Jesus, so we would know what he's like in human flesh, know his character, know his will, and know what to expect. For instance, Jesus said the night before his crucifixion, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. But in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. He says, if you're doubting God's reality or God's identity because you're having trouble, look harder. Look harder at who I am and and what I did for you and the way I work because Jesus promised in this world where people consistently play God just like I was and want their will and ways done way more than seeking God and his will and ways Because of that, you and I, all of us will have trouble. We cause it for each other. But take heart, he said, because I've overcome the world. And in me, you can overcome too. So what that means is we must decide to trust what what you do know, even though there might be some things you don't know. Because see, doubt is not all equal. What do I mean by that? Well, if I doubt... That, that God exists, and I choose not to trust what he did through Christ. And by the way, I'm telling you, if you're willing to look, there is great reason. There is great evidence. But if you're just, if you just push that away and ignore it, and you choose to doubt this simple gospel message that God loves us so much, he entered our existence. He paid for our wrongs so that we could know we're right with him. And you just, nah, I, I, don't, I don't care about that. Well, if you're wrong, that's huge. If, if, if it turns out you ignore God your whole life and you're wrong, that's a huge mistake, mistaken doubt. But on the other hand, not all doubts are equal. Because if you choose to explore that and you come to believe there is enough reason, there's en- enough reason you know, beyond doubt to put my trust and faith in God and move toward Him. Because faith or trust is just relationship. That's how we build relationship with anyone. And if you're willing to do that, you may still have lesser doubts about lesser tenets of the faith. You know, maybe questions in Genesis like, did God create in seven literal 24 days or seven long periods of millions of years? And, and you may still have questions or doubts but you hold to what is central. And what is central is what Jesus claimed for himself. This simple gospel message. And that's where you have to start. Because I'm very confident that, you know, we'll get to heaven. And many of us will have our theologies and our understandings corrected. And then I'll say, see, I told you so. <laughs> no. Mine too. All of us. We, none of us know everything. So we can't possibly get it all right. But I can say very confidently that you can discover beyond a reasonable doubt that the claims of Jesus are true. And you can hold tightly to that, what you do know, even though some other things you may still struggle with and have doubts about. What God wants is for you to trust him more and more because trust is what every relationship is built upon. That's what faith is, trust, And what you find is, the more you trust, the more you look back and see evidence in a very personal way that God is real. And this is true. And soon, you don't need all that doubt anymore. That's what happened with Thomas. Jesus appeared to over 500 eyewitnesses in the months following the crucifixion. One of them was Thomas. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked... Jesus came and stood among them and said, "'Peace be with you.'" And then he said to Thomas, "'Put your finger here, see my hands? Reach out your hand, put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Trust me, Thomas.'" Thomas said, "'My Lord and my God.'" And then Jesus told him, "'Because you've seen, you believe. Blessed, even greater are those who have not seen and yet believe.'" Thomas did choose to trust. And in fact, Thomas is the one who went on and brought this gospel, which means good news to Iran and to India, telling people of of God's favor, of God's love and how he forgives everyone because of what he's done in Christ. We can all know we can be right with him by a simple turn of faith in our hearts. But don't miss what Jesus said to Thomas because it's actually for you and me. He said, Thomas, you have seen and then believed, but greater are those and more blessed are those who have not seen like you do, but yet have still believed. And as I was preparing this, I was like asking, why would that be, Lord? And I had this thought. Trust is relation. Faith is relationship. God created you for relationship with himself. And you know, if if you're only faithful In your relationship, when you see each other, but when you're apart, you're unfaithful, that's not a very strong relationship, or healthy, is it? But if you learn to be faithful to each other, and God is always faithful to us and to what he's promised. When you're apart, when you learn to trust and be trustworthy and faithful, when you're together, it's so much better. That's how we overcome our doubt. By taking steps of trust closer and closer to God.